What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda, Danny Abdeljabar. How are you, my friend? Chilling, man, as per usual. How about yourself? I can't complain. Right now it is, what is it, Tuesday, 923, uh, November 8th. So it's actually in the midterms. I kind of hear it in the the background. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I don't really care. (laughs) I'm I'm checked out. Of I'm modern actually in day. the states, you know. Oh, um, you're in. Oh, you're in Texas, aren't you? Yeah, I'm here to vote four times. <laughs> you're 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 here to place your vote for like any of your dead big relatives. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> good, good. Um, yeah, I'm just I'm just so checked out. Like I I don't really care anymore about U.S. politics. Everyone virtually has the same exact policies between Republicans and Democrats. I, I just see mm-hmm. very little difference between the two. Yeah. And when it comes to monetary policy, it's it's everything's centered around the Fed. So I'm just, you know, it's just like is the Fed raising interest rates or not? And um, what what politicians can do is just provide temporary relief to people who, and and that's just based off like who their voting blocks are. Right. So and I'm just often with consequences that, are, yeah. that come down the line. Yeah, dude, I'm, I'm the same exact way, man. And and I have a convenient excuse that I now live in uh, you know America's colony, Puerto Rico. So uh, I'm not allowed to vote for stuff that matters anymore. <laughs> so um, I'm like I, I'm defaulted as recused. So I can well, complain and not vote at the same time. <laughs> and that's it's okay. better. It's better than my excuse, then. I just don't feel like going to the poll. I mean, I'm in New York right now, which I guess there's a, there's a close governor's race. I don't think that, I mean, who knows what's going to happen tomorrow. Um, I don't want to talk about the midterms really at all because I'm not, I don't like being in the business of doing like political predictions because first and foremost, it's always, I'm always wrong. And uh, <laughs> second, it, I don't think people are that interested and this will be a day late anyway. So I'll be proven wrong. But yeah, there's actually a close race, like a surprisingly close race in in New York for the governorship, or closer than what it what is expected between Zeldin and and Hochul. And um, when I'm in Long Island, I actually just see a lot of uh, Zeldin. Zeldin is from Long Island, and everywhere is, is pretty much covered with Zeldin um, paraphernalia or collateral or whatever. But it's interesting. Uh, Long Island is, is, you know, a lot more right-leaning than, than New York City proper. But um, I guess we'll see what happens. Um, yep. <clears throat> on today's episode, we are going to be talking about World War One Again, we're going to continue the, the discussion that we're having regarding the origins of World War One, the causes of World War One. Last episode... We primarily spoke about the unification of Germany and its impact on um, balance of power politics in Europe. In short, Germany goes from a confederate realm of microstates to one unified state, which immediately becomes the or one of the biggest industrial powers in Europe. And in the last stage of the German Revolution, there's a war fought between Prussia and France, and it, it solidifies the country under Prussian rule. And through this war, Germany annexes Alsace-Lorraine, which causes German foreign policy 
to focus on countering uh, French uh, revanchism. Uh, I'm saying that right. Revanchism. 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 I've actually it's just a learned French that. word. <laughs> I learned that word last week, so I'm now trying to better myself and use it again. But it means um, the it means to uh, the desire to retaliate. Revanchism. So the French one. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, the Latin word for um, all right. So the French were obviously dead set on on taking back this territory that was you know considered stolen. So what Otto von Bismarck does, who is the German Chancellor at the time, he is their foreign who, who's you know running their foreign policy essentially. His strategy is to try to isolate France from its European allies. Because the last thing that he wants are two hostile neighbors, specifically a hostile France on his western flank, and then you know a hostile Russia or uh, Austria-Hungary on his eastern flank. So the primary goal of German policy during the Bismarck era is to prevent the emergence of a hostile coalition of great powers. Therefore, Bismarck he wanted to create. Tension between the French and the British, and tension between the British and the Russians. As long as Britain, France, and Russia remained imperial rivals, Germany would always be able to play the margins between them. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, the Germans would try to stabilize their relationship between Austria, Hungary, and Russia. So neither one of them would feel the need to join an alliance with France. And, you know, at this period, Austria, Hungary, and Russia—they're they're rivals over a, a big hotspot in the world in, in the Balkans. The Russia is supporting the Serbs, um, and Austria, Hungary is, is doing what they can to keep the Ottoman Empire from crumbling. So they have opposing foreign policy views, and the last thing that Germany wants is is for them to get into a fight because they don't want to be dragged into a war. Now, what eventually happens is. This dynamic, it evolves into the two polarized rival power blocks. And this power block, the, these two power blocks, they essentially guarantee World War I is going to happen. Now, I'm going to kick this off by referring to Christopher Clark's book, Sleepwalkers. And I used this a lot last book, but it's a great book on World War I. It, 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 um, it's, I think it's one of the authoritative books to come out in the past 10 years on, on the origins of World War I, so I'd definitely pick it up. If you compare a diagram of the alliances among the European great powers in 1887 with a similar map for the year 1907, you see the outlines of a transformation. The first diagram reveals a multipolar system in which a plurality of forces and interests balance each other in precarious equilibrium. Move forward 20 years to a diagram of the European alliances in 1907, and the picture has changed utterly. You see a bipolar Europe organized around two alliance systems. So what he's saying in layman's terms is that Europe went from, you know, the great powers in Europe went from frenemies. So, you know, they all had their own separate agenda and they all had their contradicting rivalries uh, and friendships to essentially partners and this all turns into two 
power blocks that eventually go to war with each other. So I'm going to continue. The polarization of Europe's geopolitical system was a crucial precondition for the war that broke out in 1914. It is almost impossible to see how a crisis in Austro-Serbian relations, however grave, could have dragged the, Euro dragged the Europe of 1887 into a continental war. This bifurcation into, into two alliances blocks did not cause the war. Indeed, it did as much to mute as to escalate conflicts in the pre-war years. Yet, without these two blocks, the war could not have broken out in the way that it did. The bipolar system structured the environment in which the crucial decisions were made. So I guess a question, and um, this is a question that you know, I don't really have the answer, for, the answer for, but I think it's worth thinking about in a modern context. Do multipolar systems, are they destined to become bipolar systems? That's a really good question. I mean, at least when in the context of World War One, it certainly did. You know, uh, just as as you've pointed out, you know, in this book, it's it's all of these individual actors with their own set of agreements and alignments, and you know, d different sets of characteristics. They eventually coalesce to form a bipolar system between two axis powers, right? And I feel like you could probably run that run that play through World War II as well. You could run that play through the Cold War and probably in some certain scenarios kind of putting aside the United States for being the omnipolar world for a moment the only superpower you can start to see certain forces joining forces even today. It seems like multipolar systems have a critical flaw in them and that is whenever any one party gets a little bit too strong they tend to join up with each other through the common interest of combating the larger power well it's just it's the the argument for the unipolar world so the the argument that a modern day neoconservative would make <clears throat> Or not even just a neoconservative, just a hard proponent proponent of American hegemony. Um, you know, a world where America dominates the planet. The argument is that this creates peace because there's you have this fair kind of benevolent partner who's going to go in and try to, um, you know, they're going to make peace uh, between warring states. They're going to prevent wars from breaking out. Um, and I'm not going to take on the arguments. I'm just saying the theoretical system, um, mm -hmm. that's what it would be. You know, this benevolent actor who would go and break up fights and, and prevent, and they would take care of everyone's security as well. So there's really no need to have these big armies. Now, um, you know, the argument when you hear, um, you know, writers or you know, modern day neoconservative writers talk about, you know, the, the case for a unipolar world. They're usually talking about World War One and, and how this alliance system essentially was the reason, and, and rightfully so. I think you know the alliance system and the power blocks that made were, were largely the main reason World War One was so horrible and, and 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 brought so many you know essentially brought all the world's empires into uh, a black hole in Europe. But I don't know if that is a case against. Um, 
unipolarity or bipolarity. That's guess, the thing. Is it, is, I guess is it, it guaranteed? depends on what you... Is yeah, it guaranteed I mean, it, that you're going to be power blocks? It, it depends on what, what we mean about unipolarity, really, because, you know, in many respects, the United States, it was, maybe still is, you know, the unipolar uh, power in the world today certainly was, you know, towards the fall of the... For a good 30 years, Soviet, yeah, at for, least. since the fall of the Soviet Union, but it truly wasn't unipolar in the sense that, like, yeah, we dominated militarily, hands down, uh, across m- many different metrics, but the world wasn't necessarily, like, aligned entirely with the United States. It never was. It was just more like... um it was unipolar in the sense that there was one pole and an empty hole for the second pole. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, as the countries that we could imagine that are slotting into the second pole of the bipolar world that it appears that we're heading towards again, um, as they start ramping up their their you know uh, uh, GDP and ramping up their militaries and ramping up their strength, generally speaking, they start being in in the opposite pole of the United States. I don't necessarily think that we were unipolar in the sense that every country was aligned with us. It was more like there were no other countries to, at that moment, to align against us. You know what I mean? Yeah, the the only countries that were technically aligning against us were poor Right, (laughs) you know, poor emerging markets, you know, Mm -hmm. countries that really couldn't harm anyone. Um, you know, failed states. So there was never like a a power, you know, something someone could really punch back. But now you're seeing the um, kind of the formation or the beginning stages of 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 an alliance between Russia and China and 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 maybe even Iran to some degree and North Korea, surprisingly. (laughs) Yeah, just like the super villains all joining up together type type thing. And normally they would hate each other, but Justice League, we need to make a coalition of super villains. The Joker, um, it's is it is it like a self fulfilling prophecy? But I don't know that's just something to ponder on. I don't necessarily have like the best answer for that right now. Yeah, but I think it's just I think it's a question to evaluate when looking at World War, World War One. The mm-hmm. the you know the inevitable the, the is a bipolarity inevitable or can there truly be a unipolar world? Or how long could it last if there is? Because there was for for a moment, at least for a good you know, a hundred years, there was a, there was a unipolar world. Now I want to concentrate on today's episode on the British and, and, and we're going to talk about German foreign policy towards the British and then also Britain's, you know, foreign policy in general in, you know, towards the end of the 19th century going into the 20th century, including their, their naval race that, you know, we, we, we hyped up so much last episode, but, um, I want to concentrate on why did the British join forces with their arch enemies, essentially, because their two imperial rivals were the French and the Russians. They've always been rivals. How did that happen? Like, how did the British end up on the same? Like, how are how is the Triple Entente, the allies? How are three countries that have historically have had pretty bad relations? Um you know, Britain in the the past century, Britain had a bitter rivalry with Russia in Central Asia and Eastern Asia, 
and then uh, the same goes with France. Britain has a has a has a rival, an imperial rival, imperial rivalry with France in, in, in North Africa. Um, you know, they they had fought a war with with France uh, uh, during the, Napole- the Napoleonic Wars. Um, you know, that's their kind of their historic uh, rival is France. Um, so, like, what happens? Like, how does this? How are they pushed into it? Because in the, when we're going into 1870, there's really no good reason for them to join some some alliance block against Germany. So it's interesting to kind of explore how that takes place because it wasn't at all inevitable. It, it, it's easy to understand, you know, why the French and the Russians became alliance partners. They were both isolated. Yeah, you know, they fought during Napoleon's time, but, you know, they that, that was a long time ago at this point. Um, you know, the French and Russians were both... Uh, Bismarck had successfully kind of isolated them from other from other partners, and, and that's why they joined together. Now, for the most part of the 19th century, Britain was isolated from the European mainland, but it wasn't... It was by choice, you know. They did this on purpose, and um, if you if you ever read the book, uh, Pat Buchanan's book, um, you know Churchill, Stalin, and, and the Avoidable War. The first part of that book is actually on World War One before he he gets into the World War Two story, and he quotes, uh, "For as long as he had served the Queen, Lord Salisbury had sought to keep Britain free of power blocks. His policy was not one of isolation from Europe." But isolation from the Europe of, of alliances, Britannia would rule the ways, but stay out of Europe's quarrels. So this period, and this is what what Lord Salisbury uh, calls this, is the period of splendid isolation, meaning they were isolated to you know some degree from the developments of the European mainland. It wasn't like they were completely isolated; they were obviously you know an Eng- the English Channel away from the European mainland, but. They weren't getting into like these these crazy alliance systems on the mainland, you know. They were more focused on things like overseas overseas expansion and, and trade, and um, you know making money. And as you guys probably know, Britain at this time had the most powerful navy in the world, and London was the New York of the time. They were the undisputed financial capital of the world. They weren't trying to get involved in some war on the mainland. But something changes. Three weeks after the unification of Germany and the defeat of France during the Franco-Prussian War, Benjamin Disraeli, who is the he's the uh, you know the founder of the modern-day Conservative Party in Britain, he was the you know he was a prime minister for a good like twenty years or so. I forget the exact length of his term, but. He was a prime minister during the, you know, in the 1870, and he's uh, at this international speech in Versailles. So he's speaking to a bunch of other world leaders, and what he says at this speech, and I quote, "The war represents the German Revolution, a greater political event than the French Revolution of last century. There was not a single diplomatic tradition," he added, "which had been not swept away. The balance of power has been entirely destroyed." And the country which suffers more and feels the effect of this change most is England. So, 
what's interesting is that like you can just jump to the, the conclusions like oh Britain is threatened by this new German state as well, just like France and Russia are. That's actually not the case. He's not talking about Germany being a threat to England. What he's talking about more so is the global impact of the German Revolution and how it specifically would impact the behavior of other countries. Um, he's, he's talking about Russia when he makes this speech because Britain... Um, you know, they have this big geopolitical rivalry at the time. You know, this is the time of the great game where they're constantly trying to, like, you know, make deals with local tribes and places like Afghanistan and, and India. And, and, you know, they're trying to outplay each other in those regions. Um, you know, that Britain is basically paranoid that Russia is going to swoop down and, and try to conquer their, their territories in India. So they're always trying to thwart them. And that's basically like the centerpiece of, of uh, Britain's foreign policy. It's like protecting India, protecting our, our uh, territory, our claims in the east, in the far east. And Britain had fought a war with Russia in 1856 on the same side as, as the Ottomans and the French. And one of the outcomes of this war is a peace deal. And this peace deal, it prohibits warships from sailing into the Black Sea, um, you know, something that would cripple Russia far more than it would cripple the British. And, you know, the purpose of the treaty was to prevent Russia from threatening the Eastern Mediterranean or, or um, you know, essentially disrupting British land and sea routes to India. However, after France was defeated by Prussia in 1870, the French government co totally collapses. So um, Napoleon III, he is kicked out of France, and he go he goes into exile in Britain. Um, I don't know what government this is. What is it like the Second French Empire, and then it's the um, the Third French Republic or the Second French? I think it's the Second French Republic. Whatever we're on now, if, uh, on whatever goes from here to what collapses in you know during World War II is the government that's created. So this this new French government, it it broke with the Crimean settlement and and uh, you know it renounced its opposition to Russia, to uh, you know Russian warships in the Black Sea, and the British are like, hey, you know we can't police this Black Sea policy by ourselves. Um, you know we're right on, we're basically on a Russian lake right now. Like what are we supposed to do? So. Russia took the opportunity to build a, a Black Sea fleet in what is modern-day Georgia. And, you know, what the British were saying and, and what they were thinking is it's like, hey, this is, this is going to be a big problem because this kind of represent this new wave of Russian expansion. And their ultimate prize, you know, the big prize in that region of the world is, is uh, Istanbul or Constantinople. Um, you know, right there on the Turkish Straits. And, and that actually is true. The Russians have always kind of looked at Constantinople as the centerpiece of, you know, Eastern Orthodox Christianity. So there's symbolic reasons to, to, to have that city. Um, there's also, there's also, you know, there's religious symbolic re reasons and all, you know, the strategic reasons as well. The Turkish Straits are the boundary between 
Europe and Asia. They're probably one of the most important straits in the entire world. So controlling that is a huge deal. So that would have been a disaster for the British. And, you know, it wasn't just it wasn't just Russia that the British were were, um, you know, worried about or, or at the very least feeling the heat from. They were also really concerned about the U.S. There were a number of border disputes in the Western Hemisphere, and uh, you know the, the you know the relationship between Germany and Britain at this time, um, you know, in the in the eighteen nineties, it's actually fairly stable, and you know there had been a pro, like a general pro German sentiment among. British ruling class. So there's a, I have an article from the Morning Post and the British newspaper from I think like 1890. And it says Britain and Germany were friends and allies of ancient standings. And Britain and Germany were friends and allies of ancient standing. And future threats to European peace would be met by the union of England's naval strengths with the military strength of Germany. So I guess there was this kind of belief that, hey, we can be partners. You have the big army. You have the big land army. We have the navy. You know, we could, we could, uh, you know, really, we can join up and be a real powerful partnership. And then Kaiser Wilhelm, um, you know, he had said in this speech that, you know, I believe that, that the two Teutonic nations will bit by bit, learn to know each other better and that they will stand together to help in keeping the peace of the world. We ought to form an Anglo-Germanic alliance, you to keep the seas while we would be responsible for the land. With such an alliance, not a mouse could stir in Europe without our permission. So, and remember, you know, Wilhelm, Will, Kaiser Wilhelm is, is related to uh, King George. He's cousins with him. And then I'm I'm going back to uh, you know the Pat aren't they Buchanan. also like related to uh, the Russian czar as well? Yeah, they're all cousins. Everyone is related. It's weird. It's monarchy, man. It's weird. That's what happens. You marry, you marry other kings and queens. You can't marry some random ass duke or something. You got to marry another princess, or you got to marry a prince. So um. Here's from, from Pat Buchanan, who, who kind of describes this dynamic. Her natural allies were Germany and the Habsburg Empire, neither of whom had designs on the British Empire. Imperial Russia, Britain's great 19th century rival, was pressing down on China, India, Afghanistan, the Turkish Strait, and the Middle East. France was Britain's ancient enemy, an imperial rival in Africa and Egypt. The nightmare of the British was a second Tilsit, where Napoleon and Tsar Alexander I, meeting on a barge in the Nelman of eight in eighteen oh seven, had divided a prostrate Europe and Middle East between them. Germany was the sole European bulwark against a French a French Russian dominance of Europe Europe and drive for hegemony in Africa, the Middle East, and Asia at the expense of the British Empire. So on the flip side of this as well. Russia feared that the British were going to join the Triple Alliance with with uh, with Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Italy. So you know there is an alliance system. 
and we talk about this in our last World War One episode where we talk about Bismarck's uh, foreign policy, but there's an alliance system in Central Europe where there is, um, I don't want to go too far into it just because um, it's, we have it last episode, but Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Italy have a triple alliance. So basically it's a military alliance with each other. And then all of them have kind of these different uh, neutrality alliances outside of that triple alliance. Well, what they were fearing, they were, they feared that the, it would be a quadruple alliance. So, uh, you know, British, their natural ally outside would, would, you know, they had rivalries with, with both the French and the British. They would join this power block to central powers. And, um, you know, that would be a huge problem for, for them. And, you know, ultimately, what it would mean is that their imperial rival in the Far East for Russia was going to join an alliance with states on their border. So, essentially, they could be sandwiched in and outflanked from east to west. Um, because, obviously, Russia spans a humongous, you know, line of territory. So they can be, you know, they can be boxed in from, from the seas, from their eastern uh, coast, and you know, to their western border by, by Germany and Austria-Hungary. Which, which, um, which meant that, um, well, l- let me pull this back. This is why Russia, the Russians, created an alliance with the French. The French wanted to contain Germany and the Russians wanted to contain Austria-Hungary and the Balkans um, and they also and also the British in the in, you know during in um, in the east as well as in Africa but both feared that um, you know they, they feared British intimacy towards the Triple Alliance and what's funny is the Russians at the same time, they really don't have any beef with the Germans at this time. If anything, they also sort of have this positive outlook towards them. Not everyone in the Russian government, of course. There is like some germophobia there. Germophobia. Is that actually a word? Yeah, but not for what you think it means. <laughs> it's Germ- like, germoph- uh, I know for like being scared of germs. germs. <laughs> but what's the word for brucephobia? Germophobia? Is it just germophobia? I don't think so. Let me Google it. Keep thinking. You, live, you lived in Germany for how many years? Don't you know this? Yeah, but that doesn't mean I would know the word for germophobia. <laughs> All right. Anti-German sentiment. Um, but the Russians certainly, the point I'm trying to make is that the Russians didn't have this vision, or at least it wasn't mainstream, or it wasn't, it was, you know, Tsar Alexander didn't have this, have this, um, uh, attitude where he he wanted to um you know smash germany into a bunch of little states and they certainly didn't want to help france annex alsace lorraine you know they weren't they didn't really give a shit if france had their uh you know their uh their eastmost territory on the on the you know western bank of the rhine wine rhine river you know, they didn't really care about France's, uh, you know, lost or annexed territory. So, where to take this is, 
So, you know, we talked about the Balkans last episode, and, and we're going to talk about the Balkans again. But there's another Before big... you get into that, I, I've got that word for you, actually, uh, if you're interested. Sure. <laughs> it's uh, Germanophobia or yeah. Teutophobia. Teutophobia. For like Teutonic. Yeah. Germophobia cool. is, be- is better. Um, but let's talk about China because China. There, there's two big geopolitical hotspots at the turn of the 20th century, the Balkans. Everyone knows that, and then there's China, which people discuss less when talking about the origins of World War One. But China was a huge piece of tension among you know all these different European powers. Um, you know, both of these hotspots were motored by the power vacuums that had been created by falling falling empires. So you have the Ottomans who were falling apart in Europe, and then in the um, you know Europe, and they were falling apart in the Middle East, and then you have the Qing Dynasty that was rapidly falling falling apart in China. In 1895. Japan defeats China in the First Sino-Japanese War. And what this does, it, it triggers this giant race for concessions by all the great powers. It basically just really heightens the tensions in Europe. It's like a giveaway. It's like, oh, man, there's this like political change and a war and the Qing Dynasty is being rolled back. Like, this is a free great China. opportunity to get <laughs> Yeah, free China. <laughs> free, free China. You know, if you look at the maps, of the old maps, when, when China's talking about you know, their gripe about being colonized, it really is kind of crude the way that it was colonized. There's there's just um, these uh, maps of territory. It's like Russia, Britain, France. Like, it is it is quite crude the way it was cut up in the way that it was even just presented at the time as in it was just like a huge, um, it was like the Wild West. Um, just happened to be a billion people there or however many I don't know what the population of China probably was. wasn't a billion, but it was a lot. <laughs> it was it was like at least five hundred million. It was it was it was larger than Europe than any European state. Now maybe that I'm making that up, but I imagine <laughs> it was close to five hundred million. If I were if I was going to make a lucky guess, um, so where was I? I just lost my train of thought. Um, okay, tensions in Europe they increased, so. In Britain's view, Russia had way too much power in Asia. And at this time, the Far East was the most important area for the, the British Empire. Like, you know, they, they cared way more about the... They cared a lot more about China and India and, you know, their territories and... and uh, you know, out east, and then they cared about their their uh, imperial possessions in 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 Africa or North America. Like that was just a way bigger priority for for them. And Russia had this clear advantage in China due to its geographic location. Essentially, you know, Russia could run Britain out of the east, um, at least land on land. Their their land army would be able to run them out of the east. And, um, you know, they were at the time, Russia was also building this this new railway system that would just give them much better access. And, and you know, they were building this railway system essentially from 
Manchuria into into Russia, so they would be able to transport things like troops and stuff at a at a way faster rate than, you know, delivering them by water, where you know the Russians, I mean, the British could could you know do some sort of blockade or prevent these ships from being sailed. You know, if they ever had a train system there, then you know the British could be really screwed out of that area. So um, this becomes like a way bigger deal when there's this um there's this um rebellion the boxer rebellion the the boxer rebellion it triggers an international intervention from europe and what happens is russia uses this intervention as a pretext to take more territory in manchuria nor in, in, in um, northern china you know the the british this there there is kind of like this um this internal hatred i feel between both countries I don't know if you kind of sense that, but um, I feel like the British just, they hate the Russians. Yeah, and it's, I go, it's and it been goes that way back, for quite some time. <laughs> and it, I think it goes back to this, to this age. Like their, their hatred for the Germans is always just in quick waves. You know, their hatred for the Hun, it, it just goes during wartime and then it kind of, uh, go, you know, goes away. Maybe Churchill was a great hater of Germany, but... Um, this I feel Nothing like the, like the, the British, of, how the British hated Russia, right? Well, the British still hate Russia, right? The it British changed. Like, the British still and and um, you know if there's a nuclear, I mean, God forbid, there's a nuclear war. I, I, everyone knows the Russians' first target is is London. It's um, so it's it's um, yeah, it's just weird dynamic maybe a british person or a british or a russian could speak more to this what what this rival what this internal rivalry or it is all about but um i'm going to bring up pat buchanan again so it was that as the 19th century came to an end britain set out to court old rivals so um so basically what happens they the british they first try to establish a strong relationship with the U.S. So they do things like side with the U.S. during the Spanish-American War. They also settle old border disputes in, um, in, in Alaska. They renegotiated the 50-year-old uh, clayton Bulkler Treaty. They um, granted the U.S. Exclu- exclusive rights to build and um, you know, um, operate canals across Panama, and then they also withdrew their fleet from the Caribbean. Um, so I got another quote from a historian, uh, Corelli Barnett. He said, the, the passage of the British battle, f- battle fleet from the Atlantic to the Pacific would now be by courtesy of the United States, and with American de- America's defeat of Spain, the Philippines, Cuba, and Puerto Rico, now American colonies, were gradually closed to British merchants by protective tariffs for the benefit of their American rivals. So the British, they reach out to America at the turn of the 20th century, and they say, hey, let's be friends. Like, we're we're basically done with the Western Hemisphere. It's all you. We're not going to come between you and between you and, and really anything you want on this side of the world. We care a lot more about the East Let's not have these dumb, this dumb rivalry. We speak the same language. Um, you know, we're brothers. We gave birth to your civilization. Let's have it. Come on. 
come on. So that that's where one of the origins of uh, you know what what we call the special relationship between the British and the in, in America. Um, but also is out of necessity because you know the British were obviously extremely overextended and they couldn't just they couldn't have rivalries with America while they had these intense rivalries with the French and also the Russians. So after after they appease America, what they do is they try to settle things in Asia. And there just happened to be an emerging power that shared a common rival with the British. And you know who that was, right? It was the Japanese. I'll answer it for you. So the Russian army and Manchuria was a threat to the Japanese colony. Well, the Japanese colony in Korea at that point. I forget. Maybe you can answer this because I think you probably know it more. But Japan had already seized Korea and, and made it a colony, or or actually, it might have been 1908, the first when Korea officially became a. Do you know the answer of this? The they dates, were well the underway. The dates elude me, but it's around the same time period. Around the same time, it wasn't a colony immediately, but it was like a protectorate, and then eventually became a colony. There's a process, but it was in that process where Japan already was like the dominant power there, and. By all means, they planned on colonizing this place. So, um, you know, Russia came along and they're like, oh, man, this, you know, these fucking Europeans. That was their their minds. Like, who the hell do they think they are? We're this great nation. We just went from sword fighting to having guns. Well, they had guns before the Meiji Restoration. That's kind of a myth. But, you know, they went, they did about 200 years of industrialization or advancement in, in military technology and naval technology in about 40 years. You know, they times it by, they, they went at four times the speed as, as European powers. By 19, by, you know, 1895 to, to 1962 or 1862, when the Meijing Restoration officially kicks off, they, they go at warp speed in terms of catching up with the West, in terms of industrialization and military might and, and naval power and military tactics and medicine and all these great things just this kind of miracle uh crazy advancement in and uh in society now um they are obviously yeah so they're uh you know rivals with russia as well so they sign the Anglo-Japanese Treaty in the beginning of 1902. So what happens is each nation agreed to remain neutral if the other one got into a war with with another power. But if they get into a war with two powers, they would come to each other's aid. So basically what they're saying is that if you get into a war with whatever country, so in Japan's case, Russia, which is you know, it's going to happen a couple years later, Britain is not obligated to get into war with with Russia. However, if Russia joins, if France joins that battle or or you know attacks you as well, then we're coming. Well, then we're going to come and help you, and vice versa. If if um you know Britain ends up in a battle, a war with some country, and um you get the point. You know it's the the point of the of the treaty is the, is to prevent there being some like massive imbalance of, of power 
we'll help you. We'll take on one of them if, if, you, if you get attacked by two. So they signed this treaty and, um, you know, essentially it gives Japan the confidence to ultimately launch its surprise attack on the Russian naval, naval squadron that's stationed at Port Arthur, which, um, which leads to, you know, the, the blowback is that, you know, the Russians, they send their Baltic fleet as payback. And the Baltic fleet, it gets, it gets ambushed by um, the, uh, the Japanese uh, legendary Admiral Togo. And the, the Russian Baltic fleet is just totally liquefied. It disappears. They have like two ships left, like two small ships left at the end of this battle. Like it's one of the most decisive naval battles ever. And, you know, they do this. They're, they're basically ambushed in this strait between Korea and Japan. The land war is actually kind of more even. Like there's more of a kind of a stalemate. But the Japan just overwhelmingly wins in the, the Navy battles. Um, so the British, you know, they choose, they choose wisely. You know, they, they make ultimately the, the correct choice in this new partnership. And then after the war, um, you know, Japan and Britain, they, they become formal alliance partners. Um, so, you know, they solve their, their problems in the Western Hemisphere. They solve their problems or they make their, I'm not going to say solve their problems because we know what ultimately happens, but they settle their affairs in the, in, with America. They settle their affairs in the East. So now what the British do is they try to settle things in Europe. And what their goal first was, they tried to pull France away from their alliance with Russia. So in the past, they had found that, you know, giving the, when they had arguments with the France, they would just give them concessions on something. So um, in the case of like Southeast Asia, where there's, um, you know, the British, British Burma, and then French Indochina, you know, Vietnam, the, the southeastern China or southeastern Asia, um, you know, what would what would they would um, concede, you know, areas like in the borderlands between those regions. Um, and then that would help, you know, settle things with France or even kind of pull them away from Russia at some points. So in 1904, they created these additional colonial agreements with the French. And most importantly, and this is going to be important later uh, when we start talking about the Germans, but they settled the Egypt issue. The e Egypt was a contested issue because the French had built the Suez Canal and basically Egypt, uh, the British went in there and they occupied it during an Egyptian nationalist movement. Um, and, and they went, they went there, went down, they put down the revolt and then they essentially seized the Suez Canal and the French weren't happy about it. But in return, basically, Britain and France agreed to uh, kind of recognize fears of influence in Northern Africa. Britain recognized Morocco as, as French, and France recognized Egypt as British. So this agreement, it, it also, what it did is it also prevented... The, the French and the British from entering a entering the, the the war between Japan and Russia. You know, if one of them had to support their allies, because again, you know, they're both of their their primary partners or their their war military alliance partners are at war with each other. So they make this deal to um, you know to make sure that they don't get into a war with each other. Um, you know, they sat. And they sat on the sidelines and they watched Russia just get humiliated in this war. 
So as um, I'm going to pull back to the book uh, Sleepwalkers from Christopher Clark. The Entente Cordial of 1904 was by the same token not primarily an anti-German agreement, but one that was intended to mute colonial tensions with France, while at the same time generating some measure of indirect leverage on Russia. France would exercise a restraining influence on Russia and even make it clear to St. Petersburg that French support would not be forthcoming if Russia were to pick a fight with Britain. There was thus good reason to hope, as Lord Lansdowne put it, that a good understanding with France would not improbably be the persecutor, the precursor of a better understanding with Russia. So what he's saying is that this, this relationship with France actually serves as a device to open up a relationship with Russia, to not just have a complete hostile relationship with them. And at the same time, um, at the same time as they balanced against Russia with Japan, British policymakers strove to meet the Russian challenge by teetering St. Petersburg to an imperial power-sharing agreement. There is no contradiction in this, as Sir Thomas Sanderson, permanent undersecretary at the Foreign Office, observed in a letter to the British ambassador at St. Petersburg in May 1902, this Japanese alliance was useful precisely because until the Russians see that we can take our pigs to other markets, we are not likely to bring them to book. It would thus tend to promote rather than discourage Britain's chance of some definite, definite understanding. British security reviews continue to uh, envision catastrophic scenarios in Central Asia. The Russians, the British cabinet, the Russians, the British cabinet was told in December 1901 were capable of pouring 200,000 troops in Transcaspia and the Herat in order to prevail against such a force. The British garrison in India would have to increase permanently by between 50,000 to 100,000 men at a huge cost to the government. This at a time when the best financial advice called for drastic cuts in expenditures and the frenzied pace of Russian railway building to the Afghan frontier suggested that the situation was swiftly, swiftly developed, developing to Britain's disadvantage. These concerns were further amplified by the outbreak of war between Russia and Japan, and in February 1904, the fact that Russian forces at sea and on land performed rather poorly against their Japanese adversaries at first did nothing whatsoever, whatsoever to mute British anxieties. What is what if a Viscount Kitchener warned the Russians were tempted to offset their losses against Japan by threatening India? In this event, India would require massive reinforcements, and by 1905, the projected figure was 200 over 200,000 troops, according to Government of Indian estimates. The intended rise in expenditure would be enormous. Kitchener estimated that countering the menacing advance of Russia would cost 20 million pounds plus an annual charge. Of another, of another 1.5 million. This was a matter of some consequence for the liberal government that came to power in 1905, promising to cut military costs and expand domestic programs. If Britain could no longer afford to defend the northwestern frontier of India by force, then it followed that a non-military means must be found of securing India against a Russian assault. Japan's victory of, over Russia in 1905 clinched the argument in favor of an agreement. Given the magnitude of the Russian defeat and the wave of domestic turbulence that paralyzed the country, 
the claim that the threat from Russia justified immense investment in India's Indian defense no longer seems so compelling. The new Foreign Secretary, Edward Gray, came to office in December 1905, determined to see Russia reestablished in the councils of Europe, and I hope on better terms with us than she, was, than she has been yet. In May 1906, Gray succeeded in having the option of Indian reinforcements placed on the back burner. One aspect of this integral tale of imperial readjustments deserves particular emphasis. Neither the Entente cordial with France nor the, the convention with Russia was conceived by British policymakers primarily as an anti-German device. Inasmuch as German figured in British designs, it was mostly as a subordinate function of tensions with France and Russia. The German government excited resentment and anger, but all whenever it appeared to make common cause with Russia and France against Britain, as in the spring of 1980, 1895, for example, when Germany joined its two great power neighbors in pressuring Tokyo to return to China, territory conquering during the Sino-Japanese War, or in 1897 when the Germans unexpectedly seized a Chinese bridgehead at Jizhuau on the Shantung Peninsula, a move that London rightly believed had been secretly improved and encouraged by the Russians. In both cases, German actions were read against the background of perceived French and Russian designs against Brita the British. In the Chinese theater, as, as elsewhere, Germany was a diplomatic irritant rather than an existential threat. Anglo-German antagonism was not, in other words, the primary determinant of British policy. Indeed, until 1904-05, it was more often than not uh, the function of other more pressing concerns. So I know that was a long paragraph, but I, I thought it was worth kind of reading this page in it because I think it's an extremely interesting way to look at this story and look at this kind of way that it kind of is an unexpected way that these two worlds are actually polarized because it wasn't this huge anti-German sentiment at the time. They're, the British are kind of forced to make alliances or make programs or make partnerships with the Russians and the French because they're being threatened by them because they're 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 they are their imperial possessions in the east are being kind of uh, they see it being pulled away and they understand that in India their crown jewel most likely the Russians are going to be able to push them out of it at some time or at one point or another so they make basically the the choice to um, you know, to get Russia on the table instead of continue this rivalry with them because the Russian population is only growing. They're not going to be able to, even, even you know, with their loss in the, in the Sino-Japanese War, doesn't make, an, it's not going to destroy their army. They're going to be able to, you know, they could even create a need for them to make up for this mistake by taking India. So this is essentially why they kind of come to the table with these with these powers to um, to to really conti to continue to, to exist, um, you know, as the empire that they are. Does that make sense? Are you still? Yeah, man. I mean, I think it it, it certainly paints a, a totally different picture than than what I feel like is cursory taught or or common quote unquote knowledge about why World War I started and why the British joined up. You know, of course, we'll get into what made the German and British rivalry so hot. And, you know, spoiler alert, it's it's mostly around Navy. 
Uh, but you know, it's it's interesting to see that they were kind of an afterthought. <laughs> Germany, that is, they were like this is this was the best option for Britain due to all of the other moving parts all over the world, uh, rather than some kind of direct or um, you know uh, existential threat, as as Clark wrote in that book. But you know, to to pull it back, the the primary goal of German foreign policy in the Bismarck era was to prevent like exactly what was happening uh uh that what we just discussed you know the emergence of hostile coalition of of great powers and you know thus far it was pretty easy as long as the french and russian rivalry with britain stuck around it distracted it from germany but you know that you know they 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 were able to do this by not building a global empire but as you've just described different different things happened in the world that kind of forced them together uh and it wasn't necessarily you know painting a target on their back per se but it just kind of happened uh i think you, you put down another quote and I'll, I'll take this one if you don't mind um from the last world war one episode from chris chris clark and he wrote but the bismarck strategy also exacted a cost it required the germany always punch under its weight abstain from imperial feeding frenzies in africa asia and elsewhere and remain on the sidelines when other great powers world quarreled over global power shares. It also required the Berlin enter into contradictory commitments to its neighboring powers. The consequence was a sense of national paralysis that played badly with the electors whose votes determined the composition of the German national parliament. The idea of colonial possessions imagined Eldorados with cheap labor and raw materials and burgeoning native or settler populations to buy national exports was as bewitching to the German middle classes as to those of the established European empires. So, so go Oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, nah, go for it. Oh, I want to hear I want to hear your your reaction to that. I mean, you know, it it when we were talking about this last episode, it it made sense, but now comparing it with the situation that was happening with Britain and the types of alliances that it was kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, forced to enter into. It gives so much more weight about the domestic problem in Germany, um, specifically around, you know, their, their, their random uh, uh, contradictory alliances and, and agreements with these countries and, and specifically around their, you know, their almost bloodlust for <laughs> an empire, you know, that's abroad. Uh, it's kind of just like a really bad mix of things to happen. Um, so it, it's just interesting. I, I, it's, it's not as, as, as if these two countries were particularly hateful towards one another. It's just, there were so many other factors, uh, both domestic and, you know, uh, foreign that just kind of pushed them on opposite sides of the fence there. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because, and it makes sense because Germany at this time, they are the industrial power of the world. So I don't have the exact stats up in, in, in front of me, but j just to give you some context in terms of just industrial output, they were, they were, uh, you know, producing things like more steel and more coal and, and all this stuff. Um, more than everyone else combined, essentially, like more than France, Britain, and Italy combined. Combined, so they were immediately 
the the economic power as well as the military power. The problem is is that their their nation state was just stuck in a pretty crappy place to put a nation state, which is in the middle of you know your neighbor is a place where you annex territory from. It's always you know like whenever you annex territory, and it's why we don't do this or why we try not to annex territory is that it it's like you know no one's ever going to forgive you for it like it's always going to be part of like the national psychosis that they're always going to like look at uh, Crimea like Crimea is always going to be part of you know a rallying call um no matter how russian it is it's going to be part of a rallying call because i mean alsace lorraine I don't know what the exact demographics were at the time when it was annexed, but there was a pretty big German population there. There was, a, you know, there was a there was a decent chunk of German people there, and I know when they, I had read stuff when they when the France when the France um, the French had problems assimilating Germans there, um, so you know it makes sense. Like you know the Ukrainian the the Ukrainians have a hard time assimilating the Russians there, or, or at the very least, you know they're unhappy with the the mating government. But I don't want to get into Ukraine because people are people have told me stop talking about Russia Ukraine. We talk about it too much. However, <laughs> I, or stop a lap, you know, pulling everything. But it's a modern conflict, and, and and honestly, you know, the reason why I think World War One is so interesting is because of the current conflict and in, in uh, Ukraine. And, and I feel like this kind of provides additional history and context to add to that. But to pull this back into the geopolitical situation at the time, um, the British, Russians, and French, one of the advantages of having a, you know, a colonial empire is that when you get into dispute with your rivals, you can, you can kind of negotiate territory away. So right. your colonial trade. possessions, you can trade them. You're like, all right, mm-hmm. we're sorry. Here, take uh, you know this weird valley in Indochina or wherever you right. know, like they can it's basically Pokemon cards, right? You know, yeah. Like, sorry about that. They have some room to wiggle, you know. Like, okay, here's that. They don't really. It's not, you know, we're not talking about blood and soil right here. The Germans didn't have that wiggle room, and and blood and soil is kind of like that, you know, where there's this concept and and it's kind of evolves. This form of nationalism evolves a lot more in, uh, you know, Central Europe, for whatever reason, more in like Germany and places like that, where there's a concept of like blood and soil, where like you know the the soil belongs to the you know the ethnic group that currently lives there. There there is that mm-hmm. there's that concept there. You know, the Germans don't have places where they can they can't give up German speaking land to any place. You know, right. who cares if you if you give some, you know, place in the backwater away to another another country to govern them? It's not you know your citizens. You're you're ruling over these people. So, um, there there there's that dynamic, and at the same time, the British could be very greedy. If you didn't know, <laughs> if you didn't heard that that uh, that part of of history, the British could be quite greedy. In a quite unreasonable at some time at, at points, the Germans certainly thought that. So um, even Bismarck had problems with with this part of it. You know, Bismarck, you know, played this kind of weird colonial game to, you know, that I can't even fully understand, and I don't even think most historians could understand. It was it was largely in his head to some degree what was going on, but he would try to 
uh, move into different colonial, you know, different parts of Africa and, and, and then for, for the sole purpose of like kind of pitting the British and the French together. But, um, you know, he, I had read something where he was complaining about these German merchants who purchased land and the British in Africa. Ma- yeah, and, yeah, purchased land in Africa and the British, uh, kind of, you know, screwed these merchants over. They would tell them they couldn't move forward with, with their deal. And then eventually the Germans, uh, you know, claimed that territory for their own. And then the Germans went, you know, once they had inclination that the Germans were going to see, you know, claim this territory, the British went and they sailed their Navy there and they just took it like, you know, the <laughs> shit like that, where, yeah. you know, they would do, they would do things like that. And that would upset the Germans and, the Germans would accuse them of setting up an African Monroe doctrine. That was the exact verbiage. They said, you have like your own African Monroe doctrine, which of course is, you know, the doctrine of the U S saying you can't move into the Western hemisphere. That's our territory. But, um, you know, that was a Bismarck era. There was a changing of the guard in the late, you know, after 1890 Bismarck is sacked. He's largely sacked because, um, you know, Kaiser Wilhelm, he comes to power in 1988, and he immediately wants to get rid of him. Um, 1888. <laughs> yeah, 1988. Uh, in 1888, he comes to power, and he, you know, he's this young guy. Um, he's not as experienced as his father, obviously. And he starts taking this active role in German foreign policy. And then he, you know, the guy he promotes is named Friedrich von Holsten. Uh, Holstein, and um, you know he's the new uh, you know chief of the you know foreign the foreign ministry. Naturally, at this point, um, one of the real reasons why Germany and Britain like you know don't kind of seek a relationship with each other, like a real formal relationship, is because they can't really help each other out. When you think about like just where they're located and what they do. Um, yeah, on paper, it sounds like, oh, we had the big army and then you have the big, we had, we had the big army, you had the big Navy. But um, the thing is, is that Britain really can't help Germany with its like big problem. It's big national security problem. And their big national security problem is being encircled by the Russians and the French. If there's a war that breaks off, or, um, you know, the, they could be invaded by both their western and eastern flank. What what can the British really do if that happens? Like, they can't, they're not part of the continent, you know, they can't. Right. Maybe they could see some territory, but it's. I mean, they can attack French from the, France from the north, but, I mean, doesn't really But they don't want to do that. They don't want to do that. Yeah, they're not going to do that. <laughs> they're not going to, they're not going to get, they don't want to get drawn into that war. And at the same time. Um, you know, from Germany's point of view, um, they could, you know, Germany can't help Britain with their imperial, with their disputes. They're kind of like an afterthought when it comes to the imperial gain. They're like, okay, cute German colonies. All right. Well, come to us when you have like, you know, 30% of the world underneath your belt. Um, they Germany doesn't want to get into a, drawn into a war with Russia over some you know dumb dispute in China or some dumb dispute in India 
you know, due to, you know, potential British malfeasance abroad. So, you know, they, they try to, they don't ultimately want to, don't work together because it could be dangerous for both of them. They could drag both of them into, into, uh, you know, conflicts that they're, they're actually trying to avoid. So what Germany does is that, you know, instead of going into the alliance system is that they prioritize a military buildup, a massive military buildup. And that's, that's the direction that they go, mm-hmm. which, which this military buildup, what it actually does is it actually kind of makes the war more likely to happen. Right. Now it's a target on their back. It mm-hmm. puts a target and it freaks people out. Um, so another problem was that any effort by Germany in pursuing like overseas interest was met by protest by the British to the point, you know, the point of view of the British was that Britain's empire is existential to have the German empire. They already have like these great industrial resources. So it's a complete luxury. So they have all these disputes in, in, um, you know, in Africa throughout the 1890s, which are kind of afterthoughts, but they get progressively worse and worse and more serious. These like different, uh, these different kind of, uh, um, these different disputes over territories in places like, um, you know, South East Africa or, or, you know, I don't know all the states, but, you know, there's, Namibia, there's more than mostly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, and as this happens, the diplomatic situation for German policymakers is just getting progressively worse and worse every single year. Um, at the same time, Germany is showing to the public, there's kind of this sense of jubilation um, in the, in, at the very least in the German press that, you know, Germany's trying, is finally showing signs of national assertion. Like they're finally standing up to the British. And that's what the problem is. The British are the ones who are thwarting the, you know, German, you know, you know, German right to, you know, spread its language and to administer the world. So they kind of looked at Britain as the, as the uh, main foe of that, which starts to kind of turn the, the, it starts to turn the population against the British. And as at the same time, the British and the French are starting to get closer because they have these alliance systems drawn up at the Russo-Japanese War. And what Germany does is they try to test their relationship. And in the March of 1905, um, you know, what, what really kind of, you know, this is like one of the, this is like a major incident where the Kaiser who is on en route for a cruise in the Mediterranean, he basically, he, he stops off at uh, the Tangiers to pay his respect to the Sultan of Morocco. And this visit was intended to serve as a demonstration that Morocco could count on German help against French, uh, no, against the French. And um, I guess the Germans thought maybe the British would support them on this. And it actually sparks this humongous crisis because, you know, the French are obviously extremely upset, but the British don't side with the Germans. They side with the French because they're like, you can't do this. This is not the way that, you know, imperialism works. You don't go and, and uh, start Talk giving these people, people you don't <laughs> yeah. give, you don't go and start, you know, talking to these people and making them think that they, you know, they have the right not to be <laughs> colonized. 
So it actually, it actually, it starts this, um, you know, international crisis in 1905 in Morocco. Um, and um, it, it's, it kind of starts all, it, it kind of is the moment or one of the major moments that solidifies, um, you know, these, these power blocks against, against Germany and the central powers. Yep. Let me, uh, let me take this next section because I think it, it works really well. Uh, yeah, together. well, we got to jump into the personality of yeah. Kaiser Wilhelm II, because right. this is like, you know, he's like the number one personality you'd usually talk about. Obviously, he's not Hitler. Um, I'm not saying that Hitler is like a fun personality. I'm just saying that it's someone's going to clip this saying Henry says that Hitler was a fun personality. <laughs> saying Kaiser Wilhelm is just like the guy that everyone kind of throws their weight around and term, mm -hmm. you know, throws their arguments against and who started the war. And, you know, to a large degree, I mean, he wasn't the best. He was a bad ruler. He was a crappy ruler and he had problems. Um, he had these insecurity problems. And he desperately wanted Germany to be this world power on the same scale as Britain. And mm -hmm. what's ironic is that German merchant ships actually depended on the British for protection. You yeah. have to remember uh, also that Kaiser Wilhelm II, he's the cousin of King George V. So right. he's the grandson of Queen Victoria. And, you know, there's, there's this kind of weird family dynamic where, um, you know, Kaiser Wilhelm has this sort of inferiority complex. He, um, I think I think most people know is that, you know, he was disabled, Um you know, he had um, he had something went wrong with birth with his hand. So, so he had, a, you know, he had that. Um, he, um, you know, he spent a lot of time with his cousins, you know, allegedly. Like, it was like a close family where he would spend summers there. So he was exposed to, like, the British naval culture, culture at a very young age. And, um, you know, not to get too much into the personal details, but that, that British heritage... Uh, I think definitely adds to that to him desperately wanting to create this German Navy to compete with the British. So you know that I guess to um, and and maybe you can jump more to this, but I'll just start it off by saying that he you know he um, he he gets this obsession with this like this American uh, naval uh, like historian slash like influencer writer who becomes this huge hit. His name is. Um, Fuck, I forgot his name. It's uh, something with an N. He gets his big, but he's like the hot thing in terms of like naval doctrine. That's where he gets time. his ideas from. That's basically. where he gets his ideas. Yeah. Um, it's going to drive me nuts if I don't think of it. It starts with <laughs> well, an N. Well, right, let, me, let me give you some um, some background for it. Because I'd, I'd like to, you know, as promised, I'd like to talk a little bit about the actual naval race between Germany and Britain because... You know, this is a, a huge part in, you know, partly why the war started, but also, you know, how the war ended as well. Uh, had a lot to do with the developments in, in the naval uh, uh, sphere. But start this by saying, you, you know, the old saying, uh, the sun never sets on the British Empire. Well, Britain obviously needed a super strong navy to keep all of its colonial possessions, which basically spanned the entire globe at that time. By the beginning of the 20th century, the British Royal Navy was the world's most powerful naval force by far. Um, definitely earned itself a lot of jealousy from a lot of people. 
you know, especially <laughs> Kaiser Wilhelm II, right? And, you know, they, they got that title of, like, strongest navy by passing, uh, in particular, a Naval Defense Act of 1889, which basically made it legally required that they had to field a fleet of ships that was equal to the next two biggest navies combined, right? Which, thinking about it out loud, I feel like we kind of have the same policy, just without it without it actually being on paper. Like, if you think about like how many aircraft carriers we have, <laughs> we probably have more than the next two combined, probably the next five combined. <laughs> um, but uh, I digress. This was the the policy. It was legally binding. They had to have more than everyone else. And to meet that requirement, the Royal Navy ramped up its shipbuilding, and they built seven new classes of battleships. By 1897, France had, excuse me, Britain had 62 armored ships that were above 50 tons. France had 36, and Russia had 18. And those were the top three in general. Uh, and for those who don't want to math, Britain 62 is well more than enough to cover their legal requirements there. So, you know, they they were on point for their uh, for their numbers and for their for their act, but the up and coming German Empire, headed up by Kaiser Wilhelm II, who had, to your point, Henry, a little bit of an inferiority complex and had that background in in you know an experience and exposure to the naval tradition in Britain, and who was also getting a bunch of ideas from an American historian <laughs> that was talking about navies. You know, his idea was, well, we want a navy too. And they, at the time, were the fourth largest navy with just 12 armored ships above 50 tons, um, 500 tons. Uh, but the the Kaiser had this idea to aggressively expand the Imperial German Navy and begin a program to build up their navy with modern battleships. So they, they brought on a new state secretary. His name is Captain Alfred Turpitz. And this dude proposes a fleet of 19 battleships and his plans were accepted pretty quickly by the Reichstag in 1898. Now, 19 isn't exactly enough to pose a serious challenge to the British, but it would make them number three, which, you know, I guess it's a consolation prize. Then, in 1903, three German merchant ships were stopped uh, by the British off the coast of Africa, uh, and they were suspected of smuggling weapons to, you know, one of the one of the people, I think it was the Boers or something like that, um, who the British were uh, uh, having some problems with. They didn't find any weapons, but, you know, they and they were eventually released uh, afterwards. But this was pretty humiliating because, you know, to your earlier point, Henry, you were saying that you know, the Germans basically relied on the British Navy uh, to conduct, you know, trade. Uh, their merchant ships relied on the British Navy, and now suddenly the British Navy is stopping them, um, you know, doing a stop and frisk in the sea, <laughs> you know. Uh, and that was humiliating, and it was particularly humiliating for the Kaiser and and Turpitz here. You know, used this opportunity to basically propose a doubling of the 1898 building program, and so they made a new naval law uh, that was quickly passed to increase the German battle fleet to 38 ships, 38 battleships, and that would make them the second largest navy in the world. By 1905, Germany had in commission or under construction about 15 new battleships uh, of different classes. And this already is starting to, you know, uh, get under the skin of the British. And, and in particular, they have 
a quota to meet in terms of the number of ships that they have to have by law uh, over the next two. So, you know, this triggers an even bigger program of shipbuilding by the British. So the Royal Navy commissioned eight new battleships, and then this dude, whose title is incredible, First Sea Lord Admiral Jackie Fisher. <laughs> he's just it. Yeah, he's the guy who uh, sent. <laughs> he was like their most famous, the British, the most like famous naval officer in Britain right. at the time, right? He's it, the guy who makes the dread. The, the yeah, dread don't give it away. Don't give it away. Okay, <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. But but yeah, I mean, just I just think the title is incredible. Anyway, this guy Fisher. He makes a bunch of sweeping changes to the Royal Navy to focus instead of um, on the French and, and on the Russians uh, to now focus on the Germans because now suddenly, you know, they're, they're an economic powerhouse. They have a lot of steel. They have a lot of industry, so they can build ships really fast. And like, oh, shit, we need to now focus on these Germans because now they're deciding that they want to make a bunch of ships. So one of the things he did was uh, he starts pulling all of the best battleships from across the globe. Uh, back to Britain to serve as a counter to the Germans. So he's just increasing his his, um, domestic force. And then he scraps like 90 ships that he thought were, quote, too weak to fight and too slow to run away, uh, which I think is pretty interesting, right? So he's he's trimming the fat there. Um, And then really the the idea for Fisher is, is quality over quantity. That was the play. And to execute on this, he creates a new type of battleship. Or he has one designed, and it's called the HMS Dreadnought, and that's where you were about to give away. Uh, <laughs> the idea uh, for the Dreadnought was to create a battleship that had a super high top speed, relatively, uh, and as many large 12-inch guns as possible. Uh, so previous battleships had, you know, the, the best ones available had maybe four 12-inch guns and a bunch of other guns of smaller calibers that were primarily designed for like medium and short range combat. Um, but this design choice was because people assumed that naval battles would be fought at close range, you know, basically like right next, like, like the pirate ships that like line up right next to each other, like a couple feet away and they just blast each other with cannons, you know, that was the assumption at the time, but Fisher knew better and he wanted to beef up the firepower at long range. The craziest part about Fisher's demands, though, wasn't like, oh, let's put bigger guns on on this ship. I mean, th- that was important, but the craziest part, I think, was that, you know, he demanded that the shipbuilders deliver it to him in, like, ridiculous speed. He wanted to make a statement about the power of Britain's shipbuilding, especially when compared to, you know, the German industrial uh, uh, um, giant. And, you know, he demanded it built in 12 months. That's really fast, period, right? Like, think about building ships. That's quick. But just for some context, the prior record for, like, building a ship of that style was, like, 31 months. So he was, like, cutting it in a third, basically. He was like, do it faster. <laughs> Make a bigger, faster ship with bigger guns and do it in a third of the time, which is nuts. And this this ship, the Dreadnought, made basically all of their ships useless. For some comparison... The newest German battleships that they were building, uh, the Deutschland, uh, it had four 11-inch guns, and it sailed at a top speed of about 18 and a half knots. The Dreadnought, on the other hand, had 10 12-inch guns. So more big guns, and the guns themselves were bigger. <laughs> and it sailed much faster at 21 knots, right? And that makes a really big difference, right? So the, Now, 
to be fair to the Deutschland, it, it did have a shit ton of other smaller caliber guns, but the Dreadnought not only had many more bigger guns, but it could also outrun all of the smaller guns that were meant for medium and short ranges. You just couldn't get close enough to this thing to attack it with the smaller caliber weapons. And as you can probably imagine, Germany shit their pants, basically, when they found out about the Dreadnought. Because it's like, ah, oh, fuck, we're just building all these brand new ships and <laughs> they're all useless right now. Um, yeah, enough, I think I think the point yeah. is, like, you know, at this time, the, the rate of technology was changing so quickly that you would build a ship and then it would be outdated like a year later or two years later. Like that was the speed of technology and yep. like the types of guns that in, in were being added time. to these to, at this time in this time. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, 12, 12 inch guns at that time, like that, they were firing, uh, they were firing shells like, uh, I think it's like 10,000 yards. Yep. Like so just super far. crazy. Like, cra- like crazy. This is, this is when we are truly start making like these weapons that are, terrifying right like this is absolutely terrifying during the war man you could, you should see the pictures of the guns that they're fucking transporting from place to place i mean just because... think about the, the caliber size 12 inch guns means not like the gun is 12 inches long it means the fucking hole in the front is 12 inches wide you know like think about you could like stick your whole head in that imagine the size of the shell that this thing is shooting you know it's it's just Enormous. It's exploding, you know. It's not like, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's not like some rock. It's a fucking ex- like a bomb. Um, right. It's it's it was it's crazy. I mean, it, it that ships at this time were like pacing with like cell phone technology today. You know, it was like every year it was the new fucking fancy iPhone fourteen or the Dreadnought fourteen or whatever you want to call it. You know, it was nuts. There was a bit of a double-edged sword here because, oddly enough, while Britain did develop this much better ship, it became both the biggest winner and the biggest loser after making the Dreadnought. I'll explain. So all the ships before the Dreadnought were essentially obsolete. They were useless now that the Dreadnought was around. And Britain already had a shit ton of pre-Dreadnought ships all of which would be practically useless once all these other foreign powers started making similar dreadnought ships, right? Once they they let the cat out of the bag, hey, we've got this really crazy-ass ship, everybody else is going to copy it, you know? So, you know, it, it kind of, like, renders their, their advantage, which is we have more ships than you do. It makes it useless. It's like, okay, cute, you have 60 shitty ships. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter. We'll blow them out of the sea with one. But... The thing about this is that the German response to the Dreadnought was to eventually build brand new ships, which would have as close to the same specifications as the Dreadnought as they can get. To this end, they built their own Dreadnought-class ship called the Nassau, and it sported a 12—it sported, excuse me, 12-11-inch guns and moved at about 19 knots. So it wasn't exactly parity with the Dreadnought, but it was damn close. You know, in terms of speed, it was close. Uh, the guns were slightly smaller, but, I mean, they had 12 of them, right? They had two more, so that could make up for the difference there. So it was better in some respects, but anyway, the point is that they were functionally close, and they were certainly way better than all of Britain's pre-Dreadnought classes, right? 
And at this point, Germany had already had this idea of like, let's just build a bunch of new ships, right? They don't have a, a fleet of, you know, older, shittier ships to maintain. They're just building brand new ones. They're starting from scratch. So that's what kind of almost level set the playing field is was the dreadnought. It's like, all right, this is the new starting point, dreadnought, you know, and they were both racing to make as many dreadnoughts as possible. And, you know, this is when that that naval race really starts ramping up. So Germany makes three more Nassau class ships by 1910 and six other additional like similar ships by 1912. So, you know, we got nine brand new ships in that kind of category of 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 dreadnought or post dreadnought ship. And. Britain turns around and responds with six additional dreadnoughts and designed a super dreadnought. Uh, and this guy, instead of having 12-inch guns, has 13-and-a-half-inch guns, right? So they're, they're just making the rims even bigger, you know? Um, the pace of the race was so quick, and the focus had shifted so far from the quantity towards the quality of ship that in 1912, uh, Winston Churchill announced that that, you know, 2x legal requirement from before, where you had to have, you know, as much as the next two combined. Uh, he scrapped that, and they put in, in place in favor of that. Uh, just, we have to have 60% more dreadnoughts than Germany. <laughs> that became the new rule. Just 60% more than Germany. Um, and this race was crazy. Germany would order one more ship, and Britain would turn around and order five and this time with 15-inch guns. Like, they just kept making the guns bigger, um, which is just absolutely insane. Um, and that trend just keeps continuing, you know, until by around 1916, Britain had constructed 30 dreadnoughts, which was 11 more than the Germans. And all in all, if you were comparing the, the fleets of both before World War I starts, the German fleet had 35 battleships, Six battle cruisers, 25 cruisers, and 40 subs. Britain, on the other hand, a lot more. They had 72 battleships, 10 battle cruisers, 136 cruisers, and 80 subs. In many respects, they were doubling the German number um, of ships, and, and, and many of these were of the post or post dreadnought class ships. And this this clear advantage that that Britain had going into World War One, both of qual quality and quantity of ships, allowed the British to maintain a blockade throughout all of World War One, which was honestly a really big driver of Germany's losses. And you know, I know we're we're running close to time here, and I was considering talking about one of the major or the only major uh, naval battle, which is uh, the the battle in in Jutland, Jutland. Um, but I think maybe we save it for another go. Yeah, I mean, it's just to to give a bit of a spoiler spoiler alert. All this, this 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 huge arms race, just for like one battle. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, it's a battle that I'm not really an expert on the battle, but from what I know about it, is it's like a very kind of maneuvering battle where they're both trying to avoid each other and they're kind of chasing each other down, and it's it's. It's interesting, but it's literally for, for what you all think this, of when when you play the game, the board game Battleship. Like I feel like yeah. it was pretty much, you know, um, that. But but all this just for you know basically a a a uh, an almost an entirely land war, mm -hmm. an infantry based war, right? Um, 
Huge money suck, huge loss of life, you know, because each of these ships hold, you know, lots of people. And literally on one day, I think, if I'm not mistaken, they sunk on both sides the most amount of, like, ships ever sunk. So I'm talking about thousands of people dead in a day, which was nuts. Yeah, they must be about around 2,000 people a ship in there, right? Something like that, yeah. Yeah. I mean, just to give you some more context... I mean the navy the the aircraft carriers that we have today how how I wonder how old is the what's the average age of those like 40 years old 50, 30 years old Yeah but we keep building new ones and we have more commissions yeah. so that's kind of the thing about them and those each have like 4 or 5000 people on board themselves they're like tiny little cities Yeah they're they're, they're I mean modern day aircraft carriers are bigger than these dreadnoughts but I mean those things are you know, cities basically. Right. Um, they're meant to create little city, like little countries or little land strips to murder you. Um, Funny enough, the the advent of air- aircraft carriers are what kind of made dreadnoughts useless. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. All this for uh, not like that much time in battle. Right. Um, okay. Let's wrap this up because. There's more reasons why World War went World One. There are more reasons why World War One happened besides the the arms race and and uh, the the ultimate polarization of the alliance system here. Um, so I think the the next episodes on this topic, um, I want to do the Serbian, what's going on in Serbia, and we've done this podcast before, but like, I this story is. To me, this is one of the weirdest uh, stories in history. Like, it is such a strange story, and so it's so weird um, that I want to I want to tell it again, and I'll probably tell it in more detail. But it's um, you know that, and then obviously the lead up of, of when when Archduke Ferdinand is shot, and what happens after that. Like, what? Because there's a there's you know a summer of people like, all right, what are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? Like, this is oh my god oh my god oh my god what do we do what do we do and that was basically you know what what was the mindset and the leadership there so uh hopefully you guys are finding this interesting world war one is obviously uh a topic that is you know pretty is, is people show a lot of interest in so i'm sure there there are um but let us know what you think make sure that you rate and review the podcast that is the number one way to support our show i was looking at the reviews lately and honestly I love you guys. Like you guys are the best. Um, I really appreciate it when you take time to review this podcast. It really does keep this show going. It means it honestly means the world when you guys, uh, you know, provide reviews. It's you know not. It's not every single day that I feel like reading a book. Feel like reading a book about um, geopolitics from a <laughs> hundred years ago. <laughs> honestly, it's not not every single day I have the mental energy to start reading about these alliance systems and and you know sometimes i just want to watch football um sometimes i just want to watch like you know really really dumb um you know youtube videos with cats you know i can spend a good hour just watching like you know just a video of like a duck you know running with a pizza in its mouth right um so this helps the reviews obviously uh get me get me going i'm like oh yeah people like it all right bring me on this and this you know let's let's talk about uh kaiser wilhelm 
Right. Um, it it, so, yeah, takes, it we, gives you the strength to, to move away from the ducks with the pizza in their mouth. <laughs> yeah. It gives you, it gives you the strength to, uh, to, to pull away from like the guy disguised as a plant scaring people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Yeah. So the point I'm make, please rate and, and review the podcast. It is the number one way to support our show. You can do it on both Spotify and Apple rate and review the podcast. And, um, all right, we are out. Anything to add? Nope. All right. Okay. Peace guys. Peace.